Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's quite common for us to modify our behaviour depending on who's around, pretty much. Uh, it, it really amuses me how some people, even non-Christians, actually probably especially non-Christians, um, they sometimes behave differently around me because I'm a pastor. Some people like to try and let you know that they don't care and so they purposely go out of their way to do offensive things and whatnot. That doesn't worry me. Um, then there's other people who, you know, that, a little swear word might pop out and, oop, Sorry, Father. Um, most people like that. Yeah, when when I get called Father, I know, oh, you must be from a Roman Catholic background or something. But I do it a bit too. I, I modify my behaviour depending on who's around. So, for instance, a car might come up behind me and, and have a, a, a red light and a blue light on the car. And, and while that car's behind me, I take extra special care not to do anything naughty. Um you know, and, and think of like sort of a mother might think, well, I can't understand why little Johnny's teacher would ever say such a thing about little Johnny. I mean, at home, he's the most well-behaved child. But of course, mum has no idea just how much of a monster little Johnny is when she's not around to warn him, you wait till your father gets home. All right, it, it's quite common for us to modify our behaviour depending on who's watching. And today, Paul is saying to this Philippian church, don't just be obedient when I'm around. Be even more so when I'm not there. But what's this obedience that he's talking about? He tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, to work out our salvation, it, 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 it's not about figuring it out. It's not like about working out, hmm, I wonder what my salvation means. It's, that's not what he's getting at. He's talking about a very physical thing. He's talking about the outworking of our salvation, the practical, physical demonstration of the change that God has made in us by saving us. Sadly, some... Christians, I've heard it said of them, oh, he's a very different person when he gets together with his mates and when he gets on the grog, um, or he's a very different person in business to what he is at church. You know, some Christians are like that. They can be the most generous and caring people at church when they're, and they're with folk from church, but you put them in a business situation and they just change. They give Jesus a bad name. That They're the most miserly people you'll come across and they'll take advantage of others wherever they see an opportunity and they're hard on their employees. Some of them have questionable business practices almost bordering on unethical. Now, th this shouldn't be so. 
See, that's the sort of way that the Pharisees used to operate. They knew where the line was uh, and they wanted, all right, I'll just push things right up to the line and I'll do what I can get away with. And some Christians are like that. But that's not the way we're supposed to be. With us, it's supposed to be a heart transformation. And we should be the very model of Christ in, in everything that we do. And so when Paul says to, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's not talking about just having a, a few special projects or, or a few good things that we do occasionally. And he's not talking about an, an individual act of ministry that we might do to fulfill all religious righteousness and, and all oh, that good thing, that'll cover me for the next week. Or maybe that one might cover me for two weeks. It was so good. He's not talking about that. He is talking about a daily, ongoing, outworking of the salvation that we have. He, he's talking about a life that is so profoundly transformed that, that wherever we engage with the world around us, uh, we can just see God's fingerprints all over it. And this is serious stuff. Living a righteous life, it's not an optional extra for disciples of Jesus. There's fear and there's trembling involved here. Uh, this is serious, serious stuff. Now, Usually when the Bible talks about fear and trembling, usually it's a holy fear that comes about from being in the presence of God. Now, I'm just going to do a bit of a straw poll here. Uh, is there anyone here today who's in the presence of God? Put up your hand. Now, of course, I have no idea if you put up your hand or not, but let's try and have a bit of interaction. Are you in the presence of God? Put up your hand. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus, I hope your hand is up. Um... And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, it's time you change that. It's time for you to give your life to Jesus. Now, I, I, and I know there's people who are listening to these messages today while they're, while they're driving tractors or operating earth-moving equipment or maybe driving on your way to work or just driving somewhere. And, and you might be thinking, yeah, well, I'm in the presence of God. But you know what? You're not only in the presence of God because you're listening to me give a sermon and you're not only in the presence of God because we just read a Bible reading for you to be thinking about. You are in the presence of God because you gave your life to Jesus. You invited God into your life. In fact, you gave him your life. And when you did that, he filled you with his Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit lives in you. So no matter what you're doing at the moment, God the Holy Spirit isn't only near you, he's in you. Now, this brings the presence of God to a whole new level for us. Right? We know that God is omnipresent. We know that, that that's a big word, which means that God is everywhere all of the time. There's nowhere that he is not. But for a disciple of Jesus to be filled with the Holy Spirit, well, that, that brings the presence of God to a whole new level. It, it just becomes amplified exponentially. Now, you, you just can't get rid of God, <laughs> such that if, if you thought that you did want to be rid of God and you weren't really comfortable with him being around you, well, you'd think of him as a stalker. He's not going to let you alone. We are in the presence of God. And so the way that we live as children of God is serious, serious business. 
at the moment, in my own daily Bible readings, I'm up to the book of Leviticus. Fun times. Um, but it gets me. Every time I read the book of Leviticus, um, what gets me is the lengths that Israel had to go to to get themselves right with God and to keep themselves right with God so that they could be in the presence of a holy God. And none of this was done lightly. Uh, the sacrifices and, and the washings that the priests especially had to have, and, and, and even more especially so, the high priest on that occasion when he would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And yet, you and I, through the blood of Jesus, well, we are much closer to God than the high priest ever was. Through the power of the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in us and he goes with us always. And so how seriously do we take this? Is it with fear and trembling that we carry the Spirit of God? Is it with fear and trembling in that we, we live as children of God? All right, so he tells us to work out our salvation. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, for some folk, they get all very confused about this. Uh, Paul, in his writings, is very well known for telling us not to work for our salvation. He says things like, in Romans chapter 4, he says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Right. So whose faith is, has the righteous faith? The one who doesn't work but believes. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, he says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his let us therefore strive to enter that rest. All right, there's another image there of resting rather than working. All right, so, and this is a thread which goes right through the tapestry of Paul's letters. And it helps to, to shape and to form our Christian understanding that we are not saved by works, we are saved by grace, and we're saved by faith. But... Some folk get a bit confused here. How can he be in one place saying, no, don't work, don't work, don't work, don't work. And now here in Philippians, he's saying, work. Work for good, God's good pleasure. Now, is Paul all muddled up? Has he spent a bit too much time in prison and, and too much time chatting to the, to the rodents around him? Or what's going on? No, he hasn't gotten all muddled up. In one place... Paul is talking about how to get saved. And here in Philippians, he's talking about how to be the saved. Right? So what must I do to, to get saved? Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Submit yourself to Jesus Christ. Confess your sins to him and ask him to take them away and give your life to him and he'll make you pure and holy and today you're saved. Uh, now, in the Hebrew culture, it was very different to this. Um, 
their understanding was that to be right with God, they had to keep all of the appropriate rules and regulations. They had to do all of the, the right sacrifices at the right times of the year and they had to participate in the right religious ceremonies in the right seasons and they had to eat the right thing and, and definitely don't eat the wrong thing and, and they had to not come into contact with certain people. All right, so this, this is the work that Paul is talking about when he tells us to rest from work. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we rest from all of those religious works that were prescribed by the law. Uh, Jesus Christ, he is the ultimate source of our salvation. Uh, it, the sacrifice isn't, the ceremonies aren't, and the religious festivals are not. Jesus has superseded all of these things. And so we repent of sin. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we get saved. But when we are saved, when we are the saved, there is a very profound and a very real transformation that takes place in us. It is such a life-changing experience that Jesus refers to it as being born again. And so, not through work, but through faith, we are born again and we are saved. And now that we have become one of the saved, it's just not right for me to go on as I once used to. I've been born again. I'm a new creation. I'm a very different person. I'm a very a completely different creature to what I once used to be. And you are too. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are one of the saved. So, how should you and I together be the saved? And that's what today's reading is telling us. Don't for a moment think that your life as a disciple of Jesus is going to be a life of inactivity. In fact, if the Holy Spirit of God is alive in you, you won't want your life to be a life of inactivity. Oh my goodness, I get so cranky when I hear some Christians getting accused by other Christians of having a workspace theology because they work really hard for God. Um, what a load of rubbish. We don't work to get saved. But once we are saved as the saved, man, oh man, do we ever work. It's a compulsion of the Holy Spirit. And you shouldn't need me to be telling you this. If the Holy Spirit of God is in you, he's already compelling you to work for his good pleasure. And if you don't have this inner compulsion, there is something drastically wrong with your relationship with God. Because verse 13 says to us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right? so, so God is doing his work in you so that you will start to do his good pleasure and so that you will work for his good pleasure. Now, I think at this point I'd probably better clarify that, that word work. You see, for most of us, when I say that word work, 
our mind probably goes straight to jobs that the church needs doing. Some of you might, your eyes might straight away go to the fridge and, and see the church roster and your name on that roster and think of work. Right? So you might be thinking the mowing roster or the cleaning roster or doing RE or, or leading worship or, or being on the preaching roster or, you know, somebody's got to do the administration and somebody's got to do the, do the church books. Yep, that, that's all doing work for God and, and, it's, and it's, it is for his good pleasure. But I don't think that's really what Paul's talking about here. Back in verse 12, he hinted as to what it's really about. It's about obedience. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it's about how we live. And yeah, it might include the way that we approach the, the jobs that need doing in the church. But as we read on, we realise that he means much more than that. When he uses words like blameless, innocent, to be children of God without blemish, and to be a, a, a light that we shine in a dark world. And he contrasts us with a crooked and twisted generation that is the world around us. Right? The outworking of our salvation is the practical, physical demonstration of godliness. It's the practical example of the change that God has made in us when he saved us. God is working in us so that we want to live righteously. And if you're listening to this today, and if you don't want to live more righteously then I'd seriously question my relationship with God. Because when God is at work in our lives, we want to live righteously for him. And not only that, he gives us the ability to live righteously. But we've got to work with him on that. And he gives us a bit of a, a simple portrait here of how when the children of God get together, how we should be together. In verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. <laughs> Sounds pretty much what a, what a parent would say to their kids, hey? Um, and man, oh man, I, like that, I've seen some churches who really need to read this bit and, and, and start taking notice of it. And we talked about this a little bit last week when, when we talked about Christian unity and about how in Christ we have the mind of Christ Jesus. And how when we all together who are in Christ pursue this mind of Christ, then we will find ourselves in agreement. And we won't be grumbling and disputing with one another in the church. And here's the thing. When the children of God grumble and dispute with each other, that's a blemish. That's the way of the crooked and twisted world. We're supposed to be very different to that. Now, I'm just going to, for a moment, d divert from here for a bit. Um, there's a lot of the world getting brought into the church, and some of you think that's a new thing. No, it's not a new thing. Uh, it's been happening ever since the church began. And the thing is, in every generation, we have to guard against it. 
some churches, many churches in fact, begin to embrace the, the values or the ethics of the world in all sorts of issues, whether it be the economics of greed or whether it be the definition of marriage or issues of sexuality or whether it be to the, in the field of politics or whether it be to taking on different meanings of ethics um, or whether it be promoting a, a mantra of inclusiveness or whether it be pursuing declarations of human rights that were human declarations. The, the values of the world in some quarters are, are well and truly being embraced by the church. But here we are learning that disciples of Jesus are to be very distinct from the world. We're different. That's the way we are. We are to be different from what is labelled here as a crooked and twisted generation. The values of the world, the ethics of the world, they don't line up with God's values or, or, or God's ethics. Or at least they don't often line up. They sometimes do. And I'll show you a little bit why. Okay, now for those who are listening to the audio now and, and who can't see this, I've drawn a diagram with a straight line representing God's values and a crooked line which occasionally intersects with the um, straight line and it's representing the world's values. And yes, sometimes the world's values align with God's values, but not often. Why? Because it's a crooked and a twisted line. God's, God's ways are unchanging. God's values never change. And they're always true and they're always pure and they're always fully just. Whereas things change in the world all the time. What people thought was wrong 20 years ago, they now think is marvellous. But God doesn't change. But much of the time, it will be different. And so we need to decide, am I going to be somebody who embraces God's way or will I be swayed by the twisted and crooked generation and their perspective that might be very popular in my world? Well, Paul tells us the way that it should be. Be blameless and innocent, children of God, with, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. All right, so working out our salvation with fear and trembling is about living righteously daily. It's about being unified in Christ. It's about being a light in the world, being a godly example, which is contrasted to the, to the crooked and twisted generation amongst whom we live. And fourthly, and probably most importantly, continuing in the faith. Now, at this point, if you believe in the human teaching, and I feel like I say this reasonably often, but I've got to say it again, if you believe in the human teaching of once saved, always saved, then you're probably going to have a fair bit of trouble with what Paul says here. There's a very good reason for working out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
Verse 16 says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Right, so Paul's in prison. His hope, and I might even dare to say his faith, right? So his hope and his faith is that he might get released from prison at some stage and that he'll be able to visit the Philippians once again. But, but in Paul's mind, this is no sure thing. And we actually don't know which prison stint Paul is in the midst of when he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. I think the general consensus is that it was most likely uh, that he's in in prison in Rome. Um, And if that's the case, well, we know that when he was in prison in Rome, he never actually got released from prison. In fact, he was executed there in Rome. But Paul's in prison and he's thinking about and remembering the ministry that Christ has had him doing amongst all of these places and particularly at Philippi. And if the Christians at Philippi remained in the faith, then it was all worth it. Uh, He knew that he could be proud of the ministry that he'd done among them when he took the gospel to them. He knew that it wouldn't have all been in vain. But oh, how sad it would be for Paul if those Philippians did lose their faith and they did stop following Jesus. It would be like, oh, all of that work, taking the gospel to you, that, that was all in vain. On the day of Christ, he says. Now, this is referring to the day of judgment. It's referring to the day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And on the day of Christ, whether the Philippians continue to be holding fast to the word of faith uh, would make all the difference to Paul, whether whether he would be proud of them on that day and whether he would be proud of his work of preaching the gospel to them in the first place or whether it was all in vain. Now, if you believe in once saved, always saved, well, that's going to really mess with your theology because quite a popular teaching today uh, is that if they ever had faith in the first place, well, they'll never not have faith again, right? So some people believe that if you uh, come to faith and believe in Jesus, uh, then that then you're saved and nothing can undo that. Even if you say to Jesus, well, I don't, I don't want to be saved anymore. Um, I, I, don't, I don't like you anymore. I, I don't want to go, things, go do my own way. Their belief is, well, that's tough. You're saved and you can't be unsaved. And if that were true, well, Paul would have nothing to worry about here, but he was obviously was thinking about this. And this is something that we should think about too. Part of our working out our salvation with fear and trembling is to hold fast to the gospel in which we believe. Now, I don't think that there's going to be any unbelievers in heaven, do you? I don't think there's going to be anybody there who who maybe in their youth made a commitment to Christ and was saved, but then, but then later on in life, other things were more important to them. You know, as we read the parable of the soul, we see, see a few instances of how this can happen. 
how people start out in the faith and are saved, but then they wither and die. And so with fear and trembling, we hold fast to the gospel. We hold fast to, to the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the most important thing that we could ever come across. Right. So we now come to verses 17 and 18 to end on what could be seen a rather sombre sort of a note. But through eyes of faith, we have nothing but joy. Paul knows very well that his being in prison could very well end up with his execution. And even for him being cooped up in jail, well, that was a very high price for Paul to pay. And he's really keen to see that this Philippian church, that the people there are going to stay in the faith. But he sees himself as being poured out as a sacrificial offering for their faith. <laughs> now that, that sounds all very melodramatic, but what's he talking about? He's, he's in jail for preaching the gospel. He's probably never going to get out and probably going to be executed. And we know that he actually does end up getting executed for his role in preaching the gospel. This is the sacrifice that Paul made to preach the gospel. And in some places of the world today, this very thing is happening today. People are making this kind of sacrifice. People are in jail. People are being executed because they dared to take the good news of Jesus to people who hadn't heard it, because they've dared to baptise people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when they haven't, in a nation that rejects him. That, and so that could all sound very sombre. Yes, it's by the blood of Christ that they were saved. It's by the blood of Christ that we are saved. But it's also by the blood of Paul that they got to hear the gospel. And that can sound very sombre, and yet Paul rejoices. And he says to that church that, that they should rejoice as well. He says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Wow, what a faith. What a marvellous, marvellous example of working out his own salvation with fear and trembling. What a marvellous example of, of willing and working for God's good pleasure. Now, some of you will remember um, a few weeks ago we are in Philippians chapter 1 and Paul said, For me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. The outworking of our salvation is to live for Christ. It is the practical, physical demonstration of the change that God has made in us when we were saved. And it is to live for Christ. And that's what Paul has been doing. Yes, it put his life at risk. Yes, that's why he ended up in prison, because he was living for Christ. But that's, but that's why he lived. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
Now we've been adopted as the children of God. Let's us do the same. Let's us live as the children of God. Instead of being a people who sometimes others might say, oh, yeah, they're a very different person to when they're at church. Let's not be a very different person to when we're at church. Let's always act fairly and ethically and with love. And let's let our light shine, not taking on the values of the world, but adhering to, to what God says is right and wrong and following him for all we're worth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the immense privilege that it is to be called the children of God. Lord, we've heard today that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do your work in us, do, that you would do your major works in us, that you would do the big cuts and fills in our life and that you would do the fine-tuning in us as well, that you do the final trim so that we would no longer want to live our own way, that, that we would long to live righteously so that we would long to bring you good pleasure in all that we do. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to be the holy people that you call us to be. Keep us strong in the faith. Please don't let us get halfway through the race and then fall away or give up. Lord, you mean more to us than anything else in this whole wide world. Help us to hold firm to the word of faith. And Lord, we rejoice, even when it gets tough, even when it's difficult to be a Christian, or even when it's dangerous to be a Christian because the world hates you so much. Lord, we rejoice because our eyes are set not on this life, but we eagerly await the glorious day of your coming. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. But until you do, let us be your light shining in this dark world. Amen.